Um, one of the things that I have been accused of all my life, and my daughter is here to testify, is I cannot watch a TV show or a movie without spiritualizing. You know, like, it doesn't matter if it's fiction, it can be a cartoon, it can be anything. And as I'm watching, I, I hear certain statements or I, or I see certain scenarios and I'm like, well, that's not true, well, that's a lie, and that, that's not what scripture teaches. And, my, and then, you know, my husband or my kids will kind of roll their eyes and go, Mom, it's a movie, <laughs> you know. But you know what, I have come to ponder on a little bit this week in doing this homework is that is really where God wants us. He wants us to look at everything in life through a spiritual prism. He wants us to see and think of everything that we observe, everything that we experience, everything that we we purpose to do in life, that it is done through the knowledge that one day we, there's a reality that we're going to. That this life is really the temporal, it's the, it's the shadow, just like so many other things are in scripture. He's showing us this, this is the training ground. This is the place where we, we learn to know our God and, and truly uh, learn to be obedient to him. But this life, the things that we're doing here are really the temporal. And as we said earlier in our, in our Sunday school class, that what we've been looking at is whatever it is that I do here, this is not what attains me my salvation. My salvation was attained for me in Christ Jesus. And it is a done deal. But what does God desire of us? Now, this brings up the question for us in this book when we're looking at it, we want to first and foremost establish our literary understanding of it. What kind of a literary book are we looking at here? Okay, it is a letter. As you observe the letter, what kind of things did you see in it? What kind of a letter is it? Pardon? Okay, there is a thank you in there, certainly. He, he makes mention of a gift, right, that had been brought to him, all right? So, in part, it was written for a thank you. And, okay, lots of encouragement, lots of exhortation. Did you notice a lot of the, even especially toward the end, the let us and, and do this and so forth, right? So, exhortations and encouragements, what else? Lots of joy is mentioned. He t keeps reminding them about something, and in that reminding about the joy, what is it that he's actually doing? In order to bring them to a place of joy, what does he have to do? Okay, instruction. Uh, so it's a letter of instruction and a letter of exhortation, right? Okay, and... And in that, then once you know what your literary style is, now you can begin to say, okay, if I'm understanding then that what the author is doing is writing to these people to instruct them and to exhort them, now I'm beginning already to say, okay, now I'm understanding what's going on here. One of the other things that kind of came to my mind, though, as I was doing some other preparatory things. I was, I've been listening to some other sermons and so forth, things that, that just helped me to uh, get a broader perspective. But I think that sometimes when we are trying to establish context, one of the first questions we want to know is what is the author's purpose for writing, correct? Well, 
just looking at the literary style helps us to do that a little bit. We see it's about exhortation and instruction, right? In there is also a thank you as well. But we see the exhortation, the instruction as his primary focus of, of attention and words, the, the length of them. But one of the things I don't want us to ever forget is when we're looking to determine the author's purpose is who the real author is. Because part of what we do is we say, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this right now, and I just want to lay this out front in the beginning so we don't lose sight of it first and foremost. And that is, yes, it's about Paul and his life, and yes, it's about the recipients and their lives. But more importantly, going before that, ahead of that, in greater importance to all that is this is a letter from God through the lives of people for the purpose of him explaining to us what it is that he desires from us, what um, instruction about what his plan is in our future, things that God wants to touch our heart about, not so much what Paul wants us to know, but what God wants us to know. I thought that was one of the things that kind of came out to me as I was listening to in a sermon earlier this week on that. I thought, you know, I, I need to mention that. Just let us not forget that the true author, as we begin to talk about our, our human author, remember that the true author is God, and God chose Paul for a reason. He chose Paul, he chose, and he used the situations in Paul's life and in the, in the time and place in history when this church was being established and when the body of Christ was being um, the, kind of their boundaries were being set for them to understand who they were as a people and what it was that they were, their goals, what their goals were supposed to be. God is speaking through them, but he's using their situations. So one of my thoughts consequent to that was, that's true about me too. That's true about you too. That God, when he speaks to you through his word, he's not just speaking about a distant man in a distant time and place in history, but he's, he's actually speaking directly into your life. And what our job is, personally, is to take what we hear about an ancient man and an ancient uh, situation in history and pull it forward and say, well, what's going on in my life that... I consider to be the struggles. Now, I don't get to pick my struggles. God, you know, there's a scripture that in Acts that talks about God. He determined the exact time and place in history in which we would be born. And he did so that we would seek him and find him, although he is not far from any one of us. The fact that we know that God is sovereign, he put you right here in the place that you are right now, in the family that you are in in the time in history that you are in. So you don't get to pick to be a Paul and be fighting against the Roman Empire. But you, you get to be a, you know, a, a Margaret or, or a Craig or a who, whoever. You get to be those people in this time in history, in the world that you're in right now, that God will work through you and your circumstances. And you have your own struggles and you have your own difficulties. It's not imprisonment, obviously, right? But are there other kinds of prisons and struggles that each one of us face that can be equally, I mean, we're not going to put them on the same standing, we're not trying to do that, but, but that are emotionally equally struggling for us. And can we have a right response or a wrong response, right? And so what God wants to do is take us in the place that he has placed us sovereignly. He chose to put you right here, right now. 
and he wants to say it's not it's not, you don't get to pick what your struggles are but you are going to make application of my truths in the life that I've given to you to live and you will be blessed and also judged on how you do that whether you do that well so as we are investigating this topic today of setting context we don't want to lose sight of of the true author of this writing is God and the true heart that he's trying to express truth through too is you and I right here and right now although we have an example of a life to look at your life is the life that's most important in application of what we're learning okay all right now okay so what we want to do start to start with is to look at the big picture that's what you do when you do um, inductive work first observation of the most obvious in order to set context so you saw that uh, Kay started right off asking you to identify your author and your recipient to mark them and to make lists on them correct how did you do was that a daunting task it was lengthy wasn't it, it took quite a bit of time lots of things and the more you interrogate the the scripture, the more nuances that you can draw out of what you're learning about that specific person and what it is that's going on in their life. Did, as you did that, did questions pop up for you? What kinds of questions did you have arise? Were there subjects that you thought, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to study more about that. What were some things that you saw? Give me some subjects of interest. Anything. Pardon? The use of deliverance and salvation. Deliverance? Okay, deliverance. Same Greek word, deliverance and salvation. You did some extra work, buddy. <laughs> deliverance and salvation. <laughs> very good. You, did, you picked up on that very nicely. You know, that's, that is going to be very interesting. When we start digging in and actually doing some word studies, it is fun when you start connecting things to see how in the English it gets translated in, in a different uh, word, and yet it, in the original language it can be the exact same word, and that's always fun. So the subject of deliverance does become an important thing for us in this book, right? Why? Okay, because one of the points we learned about the author is, where is he? He is in prison. Uh, is that 12 or 13? Let me get my list so that I can. Okay, yeah, I just want to get some points here. He's in prison in 113, okay, and other places. Yeah, it becomes a, a, a key word. Is it a key word that follows through in the whole book? Okay, okay, I'm hearing some yeses and some noes. Now, this is a very interesting word. Okay, explain. Good. Excellent. Now, this is very interesting. For new precept students, they don't always pick up on this at the beginning, that sometimes there are in, in a book where in literal situations, the word suffering and the word imprisonment are two different words, right? 
But in the, the flow of thought of this author on a, the subject of his imprisonment, he connects it, doesn't he? Because at, at one point he's talking about being in prison, and then he talks about his circumstances, and then he says, uh, then he takes it into suffering. So you can almost actually key suffering, circumstance, and, and imprisonment all the same in the book, even though there are three distinctive words, and if you Greek study them, they're going to be, they're going to have their own uh, uh, specific nuances to them, but yet in the context of the flow of this thought, you're seeing that he's actually speaking about that same subject, that suffering for him in his circumstance is imprisonment. But now this kind of helps us because one of the things that what you've done, Martha, is then you've said, you know what, now I can really see how this relates to me. Because even though I'm not in prison, do I endure sufferings of any kind in my life? Are there things that I've, hardships or struggles or difficult times or painful emotional um, situations that I've had to go through and had to suffer through for the sake of my faith standing true, for the sake of Christ and his name and who he is in my life. Have I had any of those things in my life? And the answer to that would be for anyone who is a Christian, yes. So there it takes it into an, to an, a new place. So deliverance and salvation, Craig picked up on those two as also linked together, even though they're two different words in the English, that there's going to be, going to be a connection to those points. Okay? Very good. Suffering, imprisonment, and um, circumstances. Because his circumstances is his suffering, and his circumstances is that he's in prison. And so when you look at the word that way, what happens then is that subject does go through the whole book, doesn't it? Even though at first it looks like it's a a chapter keyword only in chapter one, it actually becomes a book theme that there is suffering. And the suffering, by definition, is his circumstance. Okay? Yes? Conflict. Yeah, like for instance, in chapter three. Okay, yes, very good. So conflict, and in that regard, he's making reference to his suffering and, in, and to this, and he actually says that in the previous verse, actually. He links it by that. So it's really interesting in this book how you have to be really careful to see how these things are linked to one another, that even though he uses a, a new term, he, he um, is still on the same subject. And he does so throughout the whole book. So in that regard, then, when you, when you finish with this, what you find out that he is in prison, his circumstance prison, suffering, and uh, what did I say the other one was? Um, conflict. Okay. All right, so that's really insightful for us to make that connection, okay? And in this, did you notice the why behind the circumstance and suffering? Why is he in prison? What had he done that landed him in jail? There you go. The subject of the gospel comes up, right? When I first looked in the book, I saw that the gospel... Um, 
seemed to be coming up a lot, and I thought, oh, it's going to be a theme in this whole book, too. It's going to carry through. But all of a sudden, it also kind of stopped in chapter 1. But if, if you link the gospel, though, back to his suffering, right, mm -hmm. then every time you see a mention of suffering or conflict or struggle or strife, and you know that the reason he's in that has to do with what? the gospel and his stance for Christ, then guess what? What happens with that subject? Right. Yes, exactly. So, so in another, another thing that we need to point out, for, particularly for new students and just to remind ourselves is sometimes a key word is not necessarily used lots of times. But what is it by definition that makes a word key that we would want to mark it, pay attention to it, and understand that it's significant in a book? There you go. If removed from the context, it leaves everything else sort of devoid of understanding or real meaning. The fact that he is suffering for the gospel is the major thing that's going on here. That is the circumstance behind why he is writing to them. It's what's prompting him to sit down with pen, pen in hand, right? And then he has a goal in mind for that, but this circumstance is what has, has basically uh, energized him to want to make a, write a letter to them that through God, really, through him, has used this circumstance so that God will get a message out to his people. So we see then the gospel. Let me put this on here, correct? that he was um, in prison for the cause of Christ. It says that it's specifically in 113, right? And then what we, ne we know then later, he explains it a little bit uh, better by saying he was appointed for the defense of what? Mm-hmm. might be. I, we're not quite there to break that down thoroughly, what all of the nuances are to what he might be making reference. We'd have to take that and look at what else is said just before and right after in order to clearly define what that upward call is. Okay. Okay, so there's another subject of interest, the day of Christ. That was a very cool subject, and I like the way it, ke it keeps making reference to it. And, hey, when, and when you look at the day of Christ, does it give you an idea of, of uh, time factor in it, as far as if you were to put it on a timeline? What is the day of Christ in their perspective? It's something in the future, exactly. Now, for us to understand fully what the day of Christ might have meant, we have to obviously have to research it out. Most of us 
already have a pretty good idea what it is. But for those who don't, in the process of inductive study, the point would be to stop do an evaluation of what that word is speaking of, the what is the time factor, and how do you go about developing a subject better? What are some of the things that we're going to do? Okay, look to see for cross-references. Where else is this word used that might help develop our understanding of what is the day of Christ that he's speaking of, right? What would be another thing that you might could do? doing a word study. So these are things we're going to begin to do later when we start doing inductive work. That'll begin next week. But this week what we're doing is just trying to identify some points and just kind of generally say these are things that we are going to want to look at so that we can develop a better understanding of exactly what he's saying. He's obviously using the day of Christ as an, a word of exhortation, right? He's talking about something that's, that they are looking forward to that's supposed to energize them and exhort them to move forward in whatever it is that he's instructing them in, in that particular uh, section, right? <laughs> so we know that the day of Christ obviously is something important because he's using it kind of like as a carrot, you know? He's dangling the carrot out here and he's going to talk about the day of Christ. It's coming. And so therefore, I want you to do these things, right? All right. What other kinds of things do we learn about Paul, or are there other subjects that came up to you that you thought were interesting? When you made your list, pull out your list on Paul. Guess this. Subjects of interest, um, messy churches or church drama. <laughs> not perfect. Okay, church issues that are presented in particular, uh, was that chapter 3 or 4? Four, right? Chapter four, I think it was. That's right. Where he starts talking about these women that apparently have some issues going on. Is there anything about that subject that really kind of is of interest to you and I today? Is there any reason why that would be of interest to us? <laughs> okay. If, if, if you are not identifying with this one, then you are not living in the church today. <laughs> because church always has this kind of dynamics at some point or another going on. There is church drama all the time. People, because we have different personalities and we have different ways of viewing things or perceiving things, there's always going to be an, an issue where, or an opportunity anyway, for Satan to get in the midst between two believers and stir up trouble, right? And what do you think is going to be the factor as to whether or not there's going to be resolution? There you go. Attitude of Christ. Now, has that been a subject that's come up in this? So another subject of interest has to do with just the subject of attitude. <laughs> attitude because of church issues, but not only about church issues, but for other things as well, right? Um, when it talks about attitude relating to the church issues, but what else does the attitude have an effect on? All interpersonal relationships. Not only that, but what else? What's Paul's problem? And, and how does he tell them that they are to handle suffering, right? So if you have a wrong attitude about why you're in going through a, a suffering or a difficulty, um, and, you know, your, your difficulty can be something as common, which it is common to all of us, as bad health, 
right? And if God has allowed you or you've put yourself in that position, that can happen too, but you're in a situation of bad health and now you're in the midst of that, you really have a choice, right, on your attitude toward where, you, where you're at in your, your moment of suffering. Maybe it's a disease that's just come upon you. It doesn't have anything to do with your, your own behavior or, or actions. Maybe you had a car accident and it was someone else's fault and you just seem to be the victim of it. Now, how are you going to handle that has to, a lot to do with attitude, right? When you did your, um, your first read-through, I'm hoping you did do it that way, that you sat down and read through the book on the whole. Did, did you also do as I suggested and make a list of some of your per first impressions? What were some of your first impressions about what you saw in this book? Because it kind of relates to the idea of even attitude and... There you go. Rejoicing in spite of circumstances really does seem to rise to the top, doesn't it? How, how many, we talked about earlier that he gives us um, instructions in here, and he, it's a letter of instructions, and it's a letter of exhortation, right? How many times does he repeat the same instruction, and which one seems to be repeated the most? Did you notice that when you made your list? Okay, the attitude of Christ is number one. So it's set as an example, correct? So there's a standard of example that's given, but the exhortation that he tells him now, in this example, you're going to see how you should, and this is the attitude, and the attitude is? Rejoice in the Lord. Every single, I mean, there are lots of exhortations he gives us, do this and do this and do this, right? But the one that keeps getting repeated over and over and over in here is the word, Joy and rejoice. So we have for keywords, joy, well, I guess I'll start it up here, joy and rejoice. And how often does, does that come up in chapter two? How about chapter three? And chapter four? Okay. So when you did your Basic observations, one of the things you should have figured out really quickly then was that this subject seems to go through the whole thing. And when I did my first impressions, let me just tell you kind of how I took my thoughts. I'm going to take you through an example of maybe writing for yourself your first impressions list. I think your first impressions, what's going to be cool is when we're done studying this, for me to go back and reread this and see how, how close I was to the target on things. But... Um, I almost hate to say this first one before I draw it out. Let me draw it out first. We have the subject of joy. We have the subject of circumstances, which is imprisonment and suffering. So we've talked about those. Those are three major subjects that we've got going on, right? Major subjects are, um, I wish, can I erase this, Lo Lois? I'm sorry. I need a spot here. Let's, let's do major subjects over here. All right major keywords, right? Because we're looking for things that are going through the whole book. That's why I call them major. This for, you could put it this way, book keywords, right? And the, we said suffering, and then it has to do with imprisonment and so forth, right? We saw uh, joy and rejoice as also key. Um, 
we saw the, the two major peoples were Paul and the recipients. So we have that much already established at this point. But there's another key person in this book. Did you all notice? Christ. You cannot get away from that. How strong is that subject in this book? It's like, it's like such a focus that after you actually pay, you know, it's really interesting because what, what we tend to do when we're reading scripture is we expect to see God in there, right? And so we just tend to kind of like read over it. We just, we're moving on because we're focused on the, the people in there. We want to look at Paul. We want to look at the recipients. And that is where Kate takes us. But what's interesting is in this book, once you slow down and start doing your marking, it, Paul is not nearly as dominant as Christ is in, the, in his place of importance for why Paul writes. So you're going to have to make sure that when you look at these keywords that you understand that Jesus is the most uh, repeated subject and source of everything that's, that's being said in this particular book, right? That he becomes the most important and the most repeated subject. The how and why behind everything that he discusses. And so that was one of my first impressions was, wow, in this book, how significant it is. I guess coming out of the Kings and Prophets where God is hardly mentioned. <laughs> you know, once in a while, oh yeah, we were supposed to do what the Lord said, but we didn't. You know, But in this book, Christ is the most repeated subject. So that was my first impression. The second thing that I saw was after that was that then joy seems to be his most repeat, repeated exhortation or instruction. Then, then my mind linked it to, but you know what? That joy is linked to the subject of attitude. How do you get joy? It's linked to your attitude, right? And in his writing, how did attitude come about? Does he suggest to you in any way, or did you notice how, that he suggested to us how you get the right attitude? That's right. So Christ is put forth, again, so now we're back to Christ. Christ is put forth as the ultimate example, and then he follows it, however, with other examples also, right? Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he follows Christ as our, he, you know, follow Christ, do what Christ did. But then he gives us an example of who? Who else does he use as an example for examples to follow? Himself. Yeah. And then there's a couple of others. Timothy. And who's the dude with the big name? Epaphroditus, right? So he gives us, why do you think he does that? I mean, do, isn't Christ enough of an example for us? There you go. But it's easier to follow human beings, right? Because ultimately, Christ's example is, is, it is an example that although we are to aspire to, certainly, how many of us are called to, to die on a cross for our faith? Thankfully, not many, right? However, we do have a cross, and Christ talks about this in the New Testament. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, pick up my cross. He says, pick up your cross, the cross which I have brought into your life, the Christ that I have allowed to be in your, in your world and in your life. Um, pick that cross up and follow me. So Paul, God, through Paul, writes this amazing um, 
linkage of how Christ is the ultimate example, but then he gives examples to us of how, Christ, how it is that you and I personally can also follow in that same path, how we can be Christ-like. Do you think that you, when your conversations with people that often people will say, well, I can never be like Christ. I can never live up to that standard. Do you think that, that sometimes even in our mind and thinking that's a little bit defeating? That we almost feel defeated before we start because we can never live up to that quite high standard, right? And so we, we do seem to feel a little bit like, uh, what's the point? I can never be as good as God, obviously, right? And I really shouldn't even try to be in some ways. I mean, the attitude of humility needs to be there. But if God's call to us is to follow his example, and his example was he died on a cross, how can I ever follow that, right? And, and honestly, I can also say on the other extreme, there are people who think they literally should. And they, they're wackos, but they think they should literally be nailed to a cross in order to emulate Christ. I've, I mean, I've heard of cases of this, cults that go into this direction. Yes. Right. Very good. Okay, so what he does in this book, which I think is brilliant, is he gives us an example so that we can really relate to it in a way that makes sense. He gives him two things. He says, you know, for me to live his life. Yes. But he also says he's confident that he who has begun a good work and he will bring it. There you go. Okay, so you're bringing us almost to the end on this is exactly right. Now, okay, so my first impression was Christ is the most important subject. Joy is, is the repeated exhortation. Uh, joy is linked to the mind. The, the attitude comes from, first of all, understanding what your example is. But there is a second thing. He started this in chapter 1 with a prayer for them, right? What did he say the basis of their ability to walk this out was going to be rooted in? He prays for them to have a couple of things. What was it? Knowledge and then discernment, right? So that in the end, and now if you link it and you follow it all the way to the end, you can actually say he wants them to have this knowledge and discernment so that in the end, the very last part of that sentence is who are they going to glorify? Christ. That the ultimate goal of knowledge and discernment will bring you to truly glorifying God. Out of that, you're going to have a heart that's really sold out for God, that's really loving God, that's doing so not only in passion, because that's not what he's really seeking here. When he mentions knowledge and discernment, he's saying, I want you to have a deliberate and, uh, and clear knowledge of who God is so that then you will appropriately right, accurately, then glorify God. We, there are plenty of people out there who, who at least seem to have a zeal for God. Do you remember Paul even when he talked about uh, in Acts, what is it, 16 or something like that, where he's on um, uh, the Areopagus in uh, Athens, and he says, I see that you are very zealous for, for worship, for God, right? And yet you are really, you're, you're missing the point here. There's, let me tell you about the God. You have a plaque. The plaque says to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God, the God that you don't know about yet. 
And it is so easy for people to have zeal, but misguided zeal. And in this text, I love, 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 love the fact that he starts out with a prayer that says, I want you to understand that real zeal for God that's going to result in real worship and, and glory for him is going to be first and foremost based in true knowledge and therefore discernment that will bring you to a place of really glorifying God. So as you and I are, are establishing our doctrines and our insights about who God is, you have to start with knowledge, not emotion. Okay, so attitude comes out of true knowledge. So th this linkage is Christ is the most important, joy is the most repeated. Joy is linked to attitude, and attitude comes out of knowledge and discerning. So, and there, that's what he prays for them. And then from true knowledge and discerning, you result in what? Appropriate behavior, correct? That your actions, and so do you see the, the, the it's like a, a domino falling, right? The dominoes that fall. You start with the, with the subject of God and you, each one relates to the other and has an effect on the other. I love that about this book. It just, it's like the whole, interesting to me is I've noticed in this book, it doesn't seem to be so much that he goes from subject to subject to subject in this book, but that it seems like they're all kind of interrelated and that you can almost actually start in the middle and spread out in this book, right? Although there still is some sequence of order in it. There seems to be a, a, a method to his madness in this. And we're going to see it more clearly, I think, as we, as we go on. So behavior is, reflects our knowledge and attitude, which is why it's essential to reaching, it, it, you know, you have to have that understanding of, of where the source is of it, that your knowledge and discerning comes from a knowledge and discerning of who? Christ himself, right? Not just paying attention to your circumstances and saying, well, I can fix this. I know how to clean this mess up. No, you don't. Not really. Because another mess is coming soon. It, that's, that's the reality of human living, right? Messes come. And what is really important for us is not the messes. It's our attitude and, and knowledge which gives us appropriate discerning. And through that appropriate knowledge and discerning, then we come to a place of truly glorifying him. Well, I'm thinking about it, a very wise person that wrote something to the subject. Okay. It is, uh, it's about attitude, okay? So if uh, whatever we have is a gift from God, and that's how Paul always looked at it. Yes. No matter what it was. So we have, you know, an attitude. If you look at it as a gift from God, that's a good thing. But if we begrudgingly accept life as a burden, yes. then we will miss the gift that come our way. Outlook helps determine outcome. Amen. Outlook it. determines, your outlook determines really the outcome, but it, and, it, and it determines the journey. And that's what Paul did all when he's sitting in jail. Yes. As he closes the book, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. He stresses, I think, another point to that. Then you, you know the mind, what the mind needs to learn so that you can have an appropriate understanding. And once you understand that, that's going to affect your, your behavior. And he stresses that both of those, as far as the knowledge is concerned, is a lot of it ties back to your understanding of Christ and the promises that you have in Christ. And a proper perspective of this life versus the life that God has for us to come.
right? So he brings up another subject, and that subject is what? What, what subject is he talking about at the end where he says, not this earth, but heaven, right? And when he speaks about the subject of heaven, he also speaks about a couple of other points. What are they that I think are really profound? The resurrection from the dead. So resurrection comes in there. And it's not Jesus, well, although it's going to be uh, the, the example and the, the, the first fruits of it is Jesus, but it's, he's speaking here about our resurrection, right? Our bodily resurrection. Not get, having a perspective then that's tied to this earth and our circumstances, but to understand that there's a resurrection coming and that's the goal. So he's really, he says, he stresses a purpose focus on the goal gives you fortitude, basically, right? To continue in a joyful attitude. Interesting. So we're back to knowledge helps you understand how to actually stay focused. And, the, and if you're focused on what your goal is, then the stuff that's going on here in this world gives you, you get a different perspective on it, right? Having heavenly eyes, seeing things through a takes me back to my movie thing again. I look at all these movies and I see everything through a, a prism of, you know, spiritual truth. Well, I, I do spiritualize everything, right? Because I have spiritual eyes. I see this world as the temporal and I know where I'm going. And it, when you continually live your life in that way, you don't get tangled up. Timothy talks about that. Don't be entangled by the, the affairs of this world. So heaven and our resurrection is another subject that comes up. He says, if you have that attitude, if you keep your attitude focused on the goal, the upward call in Christ Jesus, the goal of our calling, and th that can possibly have two nuances to it, the calling of the physical life, but the, call the ultimate calling of where we're going, right? Uh, and when we do that, then he we're not going to faint if we can keep our eyes on that. Chapter 2, then he points to Christ as the, as the ultimate source and example for joyful living. And then in 2.12, he says we're to live out our, our, or work out our salvation. For, for God is at work in you. So again, takes you back to how is it that you're going to be able to, to do these things. It's not because you, you, it is that you are going to purpose to do it, but it also it isn't. God is the one that established it. Is God is the one is the source of the beginning place. He has put his spirit within you. He lives and dwells within you. And because of that knowledge that of God, now you know you can live it out. And therefore, you start to take steps forward, right? All right. So setting those eyes. Now, this I, I kind of came up with three points about joy. Joy is the result of attaining correct knowledge of Christ and our future with him. Joy is also a deliberate and disciplined decision to live with eyes set on that eternal goal. I, one of the things my, I've learned from my daughter m very well in a lot of the, the struggles that we've kind of gone through as a family is that, that it is a deliberate decision. How we're, our attitude, and it makes a huge difference. How you, where you end up is really greatly determined by attitude. Um, my son just started a new job, and he's been talking about attitudes to some of these new people. He's being trained, and a lot of the people who are, who are in the training with him, there's a couple of them, not a lot, there's in particular one, that he has said, 
this person has such a bad attitude. And he said, I'm not the only one picking up on it. And he said, so are the trainers. And when that person is out of the room, he hears the trainers talking amongst themselves about that person and their bad attitude. Attitude makes a huge difference, doesn't it? It'll matter whether you stay or go, whether you advance or, or fall behind, or whether you actually lose your job altogether in, the, in that realm of conversation. But God says deliberate and disciplined decision to live with eyes set on the eternal goal matters. It'll make a difference for you. So what we see with Paul is he's trying to move their eyes from external circumstances to the goal, right? Right. Exactly. Yes. And that's another battle that he addresses and talks about. Do you think that is something that for these believers is actually a reality, a problem for some of them? Is there real, a real reality problem for us often even to fall back into um, putting confidence in our own skills and strengths and talents? For, for some of us, it is, right? For some of us, we, feel, we totally feel inadequate, and that can also be equally a problem, right? Also, but also for them, they had the problem with the Judaizers. Yes. You know, they were okay. It doesn't use the word Judaizers in here, but it is, that is what... It's and how does they, they put it? Those who put confidence in the flesh, right? Those who put, oh, confidence in the flesh and talks about those of the circumcision and so forth, right? So it's another subject of interest for us, right, to expound our insight about what he's saying there. The, it's really interesting, and that point is he just kind of skirts over it, and yet he's making an assumption that he, those who are, are reading this letter from him have a full understanding of the ramifications of all of that. And they do, because they personally have, have lived that particular life, right? So you and I as Gentiles now need to kind of understand a little bit better, what does that mean? What is he speaking of there? And how does that apply to you and I today? Or does it apply to you and I today, right? So that's another subject we're going to try to... Uh, um, thresh out a little bit better. Reliance on Christ, knowing it is he that works in me and I am working toward him. That was my conclusion. So those were my first impressions. Did you see how I kind of, there was a flow of thought for me that one subject seemed to connect to another and it seemed to connect to another. So that was my first impression. If I had to say one thing about Philippians, my first impression is that Everything in this book is interconnected and that there's really never an end to, this, to the conversation. It seems to flow through the whole book. And what, it, what seems to be his real goal in this? Well, I think he actually makes a statement about it, right? When you finished uh, looking and, and determining some of your key words, for instance, suffering and joy, uh, suffering, which could be also the word prison uh, or imprisonment and a conflict and so forth. When you finish all these, these lists, we saw that joy and rejoice seems to be the major one. Did you make a list on joy and rejoice, even though she did not ask you? Good. Excellent. Because if you did that, that list would help you to really see uh, what Paul's purpose is in writing to them. Let me see if I can find my list on joy and rejoice real quick. 
Here it is. Okay, when you did your subject of joy and rejoice, tell me some things that you learned about that from your list making. Because it is our major subject in the book, what do you see in there about it? Yeah, the, really interesting. And in that one, that's the, is that the last one that you look, is that the one you're talking to in chapter 3? He says, he says to them, rejoice, but then he follows it, and what? And again, I say rejoice. Would you say that's a real emphatic like, he's not just saying, I want you to understand, I want you to rejoice. So he's saying, no, rejoice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. He's telling them, regardless of all these things that we're talking about, that is the thing I am wanting you to pay attention to. So when you're done, having made your list on it, you see that joy and rejoice really is his purpose. It's, his, it's, it's what's motivating him to uh, write this letter to them. Yes. Uh-huh. All of us here can look back in our lives and look at situations when we just thought this was the worst thing that could happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And Paul is chained to the Praetorian Guard. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's always a bigger picture than your immediate world, isn't there? there it, and it, you're, and you're, that was really good picking up on that so early. And we're going to develop that more, I think, when we look at more at, this, at the historical setting, like starting next week, for instance. You're gonna, we will de develop that a little bit more, but the fact that you picked up on the fact that you know, in our little minute world that we live in, we think it's all about us, you know. It's not about just us, right? And people who want to say, well, my sins or my actions only affect me, yeah, no. Everything you do um, has, has, again, a domino effect. There is an effect outside of your world. It affects your friends, your neighbors. It certainly affects your, fa your immediate family, right? There you go. But he doesn't care why, as long as God gets the, gets, exactly. Yes, and, and because he is in jail, and, he, and, and when you consider his, the author's situation, what's going on with him, he's in jail, what is the real peril for him? What is the possibility for him? Death. Death is a real possibility for him. <laughs> that's a is a real possibility. Yes. So again, now it shows you his attitude. So he, he actually takes him to an example in his own viewpoints, his own his own attitude, and saying to him, "I know what's going on in this world. I know I could possibly die, right? But even if I die." 
it's okay because I have my eyes on the future, on the eternal goal. I have a true perspective about who I am and what my life is all about. And it's not in the temporal earthly, it's on the things which are to come. And that is where I really desire to be anyway, right? And so whether I live or die, to me, is ga it's gain. Either way. Wow. Does that, would you say that makes a difference in how we view especially scary, life-threatening events in our lives, if you're fa facing a real potential of death in your life on a daily basis, how does this attitude help you? Yeah. I, I was kind of thinking here a little bit about the those of you who work in prison ministry, and there are people who literally, their lives may be in peril. They may be facing a death penalty, possibly. Um, or they may be facing a future of only life in jail. Teaching them to see outside of their, their perspective place right here and now, understanding that if they are in Christ Jesus, there's an eternal thing to come that's greater and bigger than them, then they can endure in what they're in, can't they? Paul says, even if I die, whether I, whether I live on in the flesh or whether I go to be with him, to me to live is Christ. No, he does not. As a matter of fact, okay, so that takes me perfectly, Craig, to the, my next point, because this is going to take us in to see really what his major focus is. The author's purpose for writing this is followed up after he talks about life and death situation. And he concludes in 25, he thinks that he's going to live on. He has this great confidence. And that becomes another, I think, key subject in here is how he knows something and how he's confident about certain things. And it talks about that. Then he says in 25, I am convinced of this, that I'm going to live on, and I know that I will remain and continue with all. Why? So what's his purpose? For your progress and joy in faith, right? In the faith. So he actually gives us a, a purpose statement right there. The, his purpose for writing is this is for their progress and joy in the faith. So it picks up on our key subject right there. Author's purpose is for their joy. For, or no, it's for their progress. Let me get this correct. For their progress and joy in the faith. And then it takes it to then so that. Do you see the so that? So that what? Through my coming to you again. So if you want to bring that down to a real bullet point, kind of removing Paul out of this, who, who is he wanting them to have their confidence in? In Christ Jesus. And how is his coming back to them going to do that for them? Okay, for one thing, it can, it can do a variety of things. I mean, if God allows him to not die in this situation, but to be released from jail and go back to be amongst them, when he goes back to be amongst them, what's going to occur? What is he going to go back there to do? And for their progress, right? He's going to go back to help instruct them. And when they see God do this, it's going to be a result of them having done what for him? He says, they're praying. They're praying for you. Now, he believes that God is going to answer their prayers.
And by answering their prayers, it's going to strengthen them. It's going to be a progress for them in their faith. They're going to see God answering prayers. Paul's going to come back, and he also is going to help further uh, encourage them in knowledge and true knowledge of God and so forth. And that in all of that, then the end result is going to be that they're going to grow in what? Confidence in God, right? Yes. Uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is one of the most common beliefs is that it's Rome. Okay. So he never did get back to um, Well, this is, this is something that we're going to hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought because we're not ready for quite that, that much information because we have to do some background research and consider the options of where he might be writing from and what he might be talking about about in that regard? I mean, because we don't know for sure. And quite honestly, it is debated. So there's not going to be a super definitive thing. But the most important thing to remember is that what he says for them is whether I come or whether I don't, what? What does he expect from them? That they continue on and that they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the, of the gospel, right? So, There you go. Now we're back to the attitude and the mind and the unity that they're going to have. The unity comes from their goal and their focus being upon God, all of them, understanding that they, their goal is eternal things, that they're going to be with the Lord, that, that's, that God's going to come. And one day he's going to literally appear from heaven. He's going to give them a glorified body like that of Christ. And we are going to be with Christ forever. And if you keep your eyes focused on the things ahead, there's a Hebrews passage. You brought it up yesterday in class. Hebrews uh, 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, set... Fixing our eyes on Jesus. 12, 2. Yeah. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame. Let, um, let's see, how does the rest of it? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So if he did this, he fixed his eyes upon the things to come. That's what we are to do. Fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Yes? In the area of subject and stuff too, there's a kind of an underlying concern that Paul has. One is that he um, doesn't uh, do anything to be put to shame, and so that Christ will be exalted in his, in his body. And also, though stated slightly different, that he won't have run in vain because they will have met, put themselves to shame. Yeah. Now, this is interesting, and there's some nuances to that that we need to, we need to thresh out also because running in vain in this, in this particular point, we need to understand what is he talking about there? What, how could he be running in vain, and what is he speaking of? Is he talking about something to do with his salvation, or is he talking, what is he, I mean, you know, what are, what are the other um, possibilities for interpretation on that, and so that we make sure we understand clearly what he's saying there, and we're going to get to it, so hold on tight on that one, okay? Because it, interpreting that correctly also helps you to understand what it is that he's actually making reference to there, okay? So we'll, we'll get to that one later.
Okay, so we see then about Paul, he's in prison. His, we see his circumstances is about the suffering and conflict that's going on in his life. He's there for the cause of Christ, the gospel, the defense of the gospel. He says he was actually appointed for the defense of the gospel. So that also brings up another subject, right? That Paul was appointed for the gospel, now, how are we going to figure that part out, right? So what do you think you're going to need to do if you're going to come to understanding what he means by the fact that he was appointed for the gospel? Okay. Sounds to me like there was a specific time in his life where there was a calling. Someone appointed him for the defense of the gospel. Yeah, right. Or, or Acts 9 and, and so forth. Exactly. So... In order to understand that, you really need to do a more thorough background check on who Paul is, which is what we're going to do next. That'll come next week. You're going to start to look at Paul's background. Who is Paul? And who is Paul in relationship to the Philippians? Who are these Philippian believers? How did he encounter them? How, how was their friendship established, right? How did he come to know them? How, did, how is it that they seem to be in, basically in ministry with him? And how did that come about? So we're going to have to do some research on that. But that Paul was appointed for the gospel is one of the subjects of interest, I think, that is going to, we need to look at. We will be looking at. Mm -hmm. There was that time when Paul was, he had his encounter on the road to Damascus, and he goes blinded, and a particular disciple was told to go and lay hands on Paul. And yes. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the disciple. I think it was, yeah. Okay, okay. but anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, anyway, he essentially says, oh, he's been doing a lot of bad things. And, and yeah. he said, um, he is my chosen messenger. My instrument. My instrument, and um, I must show him the things he will suffer for my sake. Yes. So that is all the stuff we're going to get into next in our homework next week. Again, yeah, you're ahead of us, but that's a good thing. You're already familiar with it. When you go into it, all you're going to be doing is revalidating what you already know. And in that, in your case, that's good. For those of you who feel like sometimes you can, you're going back and you're covering over old ground that you have covered before, it's never a waste of your time to do that because to refresh your memory on all the specifics helps you to uh, draw out of this particular writing the nuances that are there. There are subtleties of things that he says that sometimes you will miss if you don't go back and do this, this kind of research. So that's the purpose for the inductive process of any Bible study. And it's why inductive Bible study is so valuable to us. Because when you go back, you're going to look, you're going to read, you're going to figure out all these connections of people and how they came to know each other and when, and is it a timeline of events of what happened first and second and third. And when you do that, then you come back into to this book and you start laying the information on and you start seeing what he's referring to when he makes reference to these things. It's going to come alive to you in a way that you could not do without that research, okay? All right, so we see his, his circumstances is all what we're seeing in these verses here, right? The, uh, we, can, we saw 113, 116. Um, he was... the. 
uncertainty of death, I think, was 120, right? So then we see about his attitude. Let's look at his attitude. His attitude, what you drew out of what you saw when you made your list on him. Give me some, just some bullet points on that. He rejoices. That is the bottom line. He rejoices. And he keeps repeating that theme over and over. I think is it, there's one in 217. Are there any others? Do you have any references on that? Yes, again, I say rejoice. He does it, and then he tells them to, right? Proclaim, yeah, so he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaiming, and in this I rejoice. So there's another one in 118. Okay, so you could list a, a, a lot of those references. So what we see about his attitude is that he's rejoicing, and concerning his attitude, what does he want them to do? Yeah, so he exhorts them to rejoice. Okay, and that's, um, and he does that by example. All right, so that gives us Paul, um, who he is, what's going on. This is, this is his circumstance. And this is his attitude. To me, those are two subjects that seem to come up, and they're demonstrated in a variety of ways just by doing your list making on the author. Let's go into the believers now. Who, who are these believers? Let's go into the recipients. <laughs> I just told you your first answer. <laughs> who are the recipients? They're the believers, and they refer to them in verse 1 as what? The saints. And he says, all the saints. I like that. Did you notice how often the word all is attached to the, the subject of your recipients in this book? Um, I don't, I know it's not in this book, but I know in, for instance, in Second John, it becomes a subject matter. But that, you know, Gnosticism, and I think it was even beginning to really rise up at this time in history. Um, this teaching that there were only a designed few or a select few that could rise to spiritual realities and enlightenment, right? And in this book, he really seems to hammer on that. And I don't know if it's connected in any way yet, but I found it interesting that he keeps saying, all of you, all of you, all of you. Maybe it has to do with the subject of unity that we brought up earlier, too, that, that you are working together as a unit. You're not just an, an island by yourself. How many times when you are in struggling and suffering do you feel like an island? Do you guys remember Elijah? What did he do after he faced the Mount Carmel and the Baals? He ran to that bank by the river and cried and he was in despair and he truly was in a place of depression because he was exhausted for one thing. He had really expended all his energy at that point. But his major complaint before God was, I'm the only one left in all of Israel, right? We do feel alone sometimes when we're in place of persecution and struggle. I think this will be a subject matter for us to look at at some point. Hopefully, it'll come up along the way. The idea that you are not alone and the fact that he keeps making reference to them, all of you, he kind of draws them together as a unit of, of power together. You're not alone. You're working this together as a church, right?
In some, in some ways, he, well, it isn't that he says they are the only one that supports him, but he does say they're the only ones who have supported him in, to the degree that they have. That they have sent, for some reason, what have they been doing from the very first? Did you guys mark your time reference on that? They just keep on sending gifts. Every time they have opportunity, they, they seem to be engaging or, or um, joining him in ministry, right? Which then explains some of the things that he makes reference to uh, them as far as who they are. He says um, in verse 5, what about them? Yeah. So they have been participants... And I like it. It's in the gospel. In other words, with me in the gospel from the first day until now. I can't wait until we get into the homework next week and get to talk about who some of those individuals are amongst the all, you know. But knowing a little bit of background about who some of these people are, really, it, it really enhances your understanding of his relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah including, and I'm just going to put it this way for shortness. Okay. He, he, yes, what he, by putting it that way, what has he done with that congregation? Yeah, it was an equalizer statement. This statement was to say you're all on equal standing here. You're all participating. There's not one of you who is least or most. You all kind are you all together are in this with me. And so he he makes this statement that that puts them all on equal standing as valuable in the work of God. How often do we seem to and we all do this. I know we do. Um, do we take certain people in our churches and we exalt them as if they're more important than everybody else? And it is so not true. I mean, I cannot tell you, when you start a study on spiritual gifts and you realize the value and the importance of the totality of the body working together, you really come to see what he's saying here in a, in a fuller way. You come to realize that that woman's or man on their knees in the prayer closet in the privacy of their home has such power to affect the work and the ministry in your church. As much, or really in many ways, I believe more so than even the one who stands at the, at the front on the platform, the music minister or the pastor or the deacons or the elders, they are also equally important. We're not diminishing their place but what we're saying is that all of you have a valuable place in the, in the work of God. And God looks at it that way. He does not judge you based on what your position is. Because guess what? He's assigned you to the position you're in. And therefore, it is a value to God. And he says so in his word. Yes? Don't put anyone on a pedestal, but also don't diminish anyone. Right? Don't do, don't do either. Don't put people up so high that they can't stand there either. Because... Trust me, if you watch a human being long enough, we learned this in Kings, they're going to fall, right? Um, even the good kings, how many times? David, even David, who was a good king, and he is, he is the one God has put up on the pedestal as the standard, right, by which all the other kings are measured against. 
including Solomon, right? But yet David, did he, was he always up on that high pedestal? In his life, did he ever have failures? And are they recorded so that we know about them? Poor guy. I mean, he, he has not got any way to hide from us. When we get there, we're going, I know what you did. <laughs> you know? I know. I know. Except for. Exactly. Right. Okay. All right. So someone, what are some of the other synonyms that are given to the uh, recipients? Beloved. Beloved. Brethren. That one is used a lot. Brethren. It, it becomes overly used. And I'm going to add this one, those of faith, just to actually really clarify that. We see that those of faith is in 2.17. Um, brethren is in several places. I'll just give you two, 3.1 and 4.1. And then the beloved is in 2.12, right? They're, yes, and so in that, when he sees a, their relationship, so this is who they are, right? This was the questions, who. Now we're going to say, we're going to look at what they are, what, W-H-A-T, right? Or relationship. Relationship to Paul. What we learn in this immediate text about their relationship to Paul, what do we, what do we see? That he, we certainly see that he calls them beloved. So we're just going to repeat that as a, our first point about how we see their relationship to Paul. What else did we learn about their relationship? It's been going on for some time. It's, it's going on. So from the first day... until now. So it seems to be an unbroken relationship that although they, they had a point in time when their relationship began, but even though he moved on and has been doing other things, they seem to have been keeping in touch with him in a real significant way, correct? And through support, for instance. He calls them fellow workers. And you see that in 4.3, right? His joy and crown. That's where I wanted to put that one in. His joy and crown. Now, that's an interesting thing. Now we have another subject thing. That is, has something to do with crowns. What is this crown thing he's talking about? We want to know, what is he talking about? He's their joy, but he's also their crown. How does he get a crown because of them? What is that about, right? I hope we covered that one. I don't know if we will, but I hope so, because it's a good subject. Okay, and what was that reference, his joy and crown? Thank you. Okay. They shared with him this affliction. Yeah. Affliction. Mm-hmm. In his affliction. Okay. Uh, oh, I see that one. Okay. Um, I don't have that one on my list. Which, where is the reference on that? Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't put, that. well, it's probably on my, other, my bigger list. I have a short list and a long list. <laughs> my short list is, <laughs> okay. It says they're obedient both in Paul's presence and I love that, obedient. Well, now that tells us something about who they are. So that would be, we need to put that up here. 
They are obedient in his presence and absence. And I know I, I, I just definitely added my own translation on that. What is the reference on that one? Thank you. Okay. So it tells us about who they are, that they are obedient in, in his presence, meaning Paul's presence, whether he's present or whether he's absent. And he commends them for that, right? Um, there's one more th- point of, I think, that's really Im- kind of shows this relationship with Paul, and that's in 2.17. What does he say about them, re- regarding them? What is his relationship for them? Right. Whether, what, what preceded that was what? That he was willing to do what? I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, he is being poured out as a drink offering. And he says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, he's not saying he, he is, but he's saying if I am, right? Then what? Rejoice. So, he, so what does that tell you about how much he loves them? He loves them so much that what is he willing to do? He's willing to die for them. And if it's necessary that he die, he's willing to do that. Is that not a love relationship? Who does that sound like? Uh (laughs) Aha. So we see that he is willing to die on their behalf. And it says in there, it says on, on the service of their faith, right? Or in, in. Uh, well, it can do both. But what I'm developing here is the relationship that they have to Paul is that he is willing to die in, in, for them and in service to them, right? On, in service of their faith. Uh, was I have 217, but it's in that area, correct? It's, in the, it's almost like you have to take the whole section together, read the whole thing in order to get the, full, the fullness of that. But the fact that he's willing to die on their behalf in service to them and, in, and, and really ultimately in service to God, right, for the gospel's sake, it shows this deep commitment that he has for them, a love for them. So it's, it's both a, an intimacy of love, but it's also a commitment on their behalf that he has for them. So this gives us a great insight about who they are. Historical setting in this book. So what do we see going on historically? Just some basic things. What are some events that have happened here? It's going to be a repeat, but what's going on? In prison. In prison. And it's for what? For the gospel. That's a historical setting point. And why is that? Yeah. Are you going to jail this afternoon for sharing the gospel or for being in this Bible study? No, we hope not to. Uh, At least not today. (laughs) Okay. But at that time in history, what was happening? People were going to jail for their faith, right? Now, are there places in our world today that people are going? Yes. So again, this just shows you a little bit about his historical setting. What was going on in his world around him? that had significant importance to understanding really the totality of everything else that's being said as well. So setting a background for us helps us to just get a bigger picture. In his world, you can go to jail 
for standing up firmly for your faith. Did everyone go to jail? No. But they would pick out those who seemed to have the most significant ministry and were making the most noise. It's why they chased Jesus all over the place, right? Until they put him to death on a cross. So, Okay, well, we're going to look into that on a timeline. Once we look at a timeline, we haven't done that part. We're, we're not really ready to date this letter, but we do have some clues about the dating that are within the immediate text. What are some historic, if you were going to do a timeline, what are some things that have occurred already? Well, the first thing is we know the church has been established, right? Um, which tells us if the church has been established, what's already happened before that? The cross. So we know Jesus has died. We know the, cry, the cross has been established. We know Philippi has received Christ, right? That church has been planted there. Um, okay, we know, we know some things about where Paul has been. And there's a litany of things that have been listed for us, right? We're going to look more carefully at that next week. But this is just showing you how you can look within the internal writings of any book. You don't need a commentary totally. You really don't. Although commentaries are certainly beneficial. They help you out at the end of things, after you've already looked. But if you look internally at what's written within the text, you can do yourself a little timeline almost every time, and you can say, oh, I know these things have happened so far. I kind of know where we are on a timeline. What, there are still some unknown factors that you can thresh out better after you do your research in it, which is what we're going to do next week. Okay, So we know he's in prison for the gospel. Um, there's another, uh, in prison for the gospel, but also the fact that he can do, what can happen to him now that he's in prison? What might happen to him? He could die. That there's a death penalty out there for, the, for what he has done. So let's do it on there. Um, Christ, proclaiming Christ. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But all of this is still historical setting for us to note it because you know that from external information, which we're going to go to next week in homework. But for right now, what we do know is that right now, in the, internally within this book, we can see that his life is in jeopardy for proclaiming the gospel. We know that right now he's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. Those are historical points of interest. Yes, I wish we had more room. I'm going to put some of that over here. It's historical I'm just going to put it this way. Historical points that we see. We see the Praetorian guard is mentioned. Uh, Caesar's um, household is mentioned. Is mentioned. Um, but I don't have the references because I don't have that list in front of me right here. Uh, is uh, 413 you said? Oh. Okay, and, and household is the very end of chapter 4, 4 some 20, thank you. 
Okay, so Caesar's household. What were some other points of historical interest to you? Okay. Timothy is mentioned. And also Epaphroditus. Okay, and Timothy is in two something, right? And then Epaphroditus is also in two. Okay. And he's also in four. He, he closes with four. Okay, excellent. Okay, yep. Okay, so that gives us, at this point, it's probably enough for discussion purposes, because I know that you did more, and there's, we would never be able to elaborate on every point, but you get the general picture. It helps you, the work that you did this week was so valuable for you kind of just getting your feet planted and able to, therefore, move forward and kind of look in, in a better way at what this book is about because you're going to understand the circumstances that are going on. You know who that person Paul is and what he's going through. You, you know who the people are that he's writing to and what they're going through and what they've also done, how they have joined with him in the work of the ministry, how he considers them participants with him in the work, right? And it, it even gave us... Some insights, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, the fact that they have been in this from him, with him from the first day until now, so it shows this longevity of relationship that he has. That, uh, you know, and that's not always true. Sometimes people get saved and they never see the person that presented that gospel to them again, right? But then there are others who they get saved, and guess what? They keep going back and they keep going back and they keep going. Eventually, they check in. They make a phone call. They go make a visit. Hi, I'm doing good. Just had to report to you. Just wanted you to know that your work for me on my behalf has had an effect that's lasting and that there's glory to God because of the fact that you shared the gospel with me. I think this is, this is exciting. I, I can tell you, years ago, I used to... Um, we lived in South Dakota. That's where my son Eric was born. And so the kids were tiny. Vanessa was like two, three, and Eric was just a baby. And I taught a class called Girls in Action. And it was at our little Baptist church that we were members of there. And I taught the, I taught the kids that were first through sixth grade girls. And it was Girls in Action, what it's called, it was missions training. That was when I knew nothing about the Bible, so all I could do was teach about missions. <laughs> it was great, though. It was the starting place, right? And um, I have, through the years, had letters from Julie Causey is her name. She doesn't, I mean, she's really not significantly in my life, but occasionally she has written letters to me telling me where she's at now in her life. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow... What I did for her in her life was powerful enough that she keeps remembering me. How do you think that makes Paul feel? You, and we're, we're thinking about this from the perspective of them and how, how blessed they are, but look how blessed Paul is being by their continually remembering him, going back to support him in some fashion or another. They feel that the work he's doing is that important. He's encouraging all of these people. Yes. Amazing. And they are encouraging him by, by, by his acknowledging 
who they are in his life and what they have done. It's right. just Why a great. They brought, you just might say that, Craig. You are brilliant. I don't know what's, what. Okay, we've got now about 15 minutes to very quickly go through. We're not going to cover everything, obviously, but let's go through really quickly and try to title some of our chapters just to see the flow of thought. At this point, what we know is we have a major subject, a book theme about joy or rejoicing. How did you title your book? What did you come up for a title on your book? There we go. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And you know what, Craig? I love that, but I'm going to add one more word because I think it's significant to the overall message. Always. Always. And only students who have actually looked at this the way we have this week would understand the significant value of that word always at the end. Right? So consider yourself arrived. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord always. And author is Paul. The recipients are the saints at Philippi. Um, pardon? We don't have a date. This is the question mark still. We have this much of our story so far for our dating. Here's my clock. I usually make it red, but that's how I mark any time references in my text. I use a clock. Um, and as long as you use a consistent marking, you'll get used to seeing those clocks on your page or however you want to do it. And pretty soon, every time you see one of those, you're going to go, oh, this gives me a time reference here. So if you do, I use a, a red clock on mine and because it pops up pretty brightly, the red does. And I want to see time references. In some books especially, that's really important. But in other books, time references like this, little notes to a time reference, might be about things like this, like the day of Christ. Okay, so you would want to mark that with a, a time reference. Uh, maybe this, this resurrection time also, because it talks about it being in the future, that, a time that's coming. And it uses the word until sometimes, until the day of Christ. So you could use uh, your clock on that word until. Okay, And that helps you pick up on time references that, that indicate something's either future or past, or ongoing even. Okay. All right, so now what we want to do is chapter titles. We have our, our book title, Rejoice in the Lord Always. Now, here's the, here's the trick about titling. I'm just going to remind you about the method here. What happens is once you have done that, we, what we have done, and that is look at your author and look at the recipient and pull out of it this message and how it flows and what seems to be his major emphasis. We have determined that his major reason is that he, he wants to um, come alongside of them to continue in their progress and joy in the faith so that their confidence may abound in Christ Jesus. Our key subject in here is Jesus. So that shows us Jesus is significant in this. And the subject of joy, that that seems to be what he's going on about here in this book, that he wants them to have joy. The way we also know that that's a major thing is the fact that he keeps repeating it. And that last one in four is super emphatic. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again. 
He wants to make sure you're paying attention. It's like a, like a big old crescendo at the end there. Rejoice, right? All right, so now that we know that, now what you want to do is you want to take each chapter and look at it kind of on the whole and say, in this chapter about him wanting them to rejoice in the Lord always, how does he go about fulfilling that? How does he accomplish his goal so that they understand that they're to rejoice in the Lord always? So what has happened in chapter 1 that helps them to understand his, his point that is that they need to rejoice anyway? Rejoice always. Okay, one of the points is that Christ has been proclaimed and he, he presents a scenario about him being in jail for the gospel and that the, as a result of that, that the gospel is being preached, right? And he says, and I don't care whether those out there who are preaching about it, if they're just talking about me and then they have to explain what it is that I'm saying and by doing that, the gospel is being, actually being preached, but they're doing it, they're doing it in a negative way. They're doing it out of, out of um, what, what was the, envy, is that what it says, out of envy maybe? And strife. Okay, so they, he has an opposition crew working behind him, and, and he's saying, I don't care if they're in opposition to me, but in doing so, they're actually proclaiming the gospel anyway or whether they're doing it out of love for me and out of love for the gospel itself. He says, I don't care for what reason, he says, the, the gospel is being preached. So in that regard, he says, let me find my, my list. Where did I put it? Here it is, buried, sorry. Okay, so he says, number one, whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed. What I did is I picked a verse and I tried to use the words directly from the text to convey what kind of is going on in that whole chapter. That what we see is that whether in pretense or whether in truth, the gospel is being preached. And that was the result of it. And he's basically in that he is rejoicing in it, right? You could even add a word to that to say he is rejoicing because basically this, if you wanted, right? Um, another thing that's going on in there is another possibility. Now, here, let me remind you, what we're doing right now is... We are trying to discover the, the major themes of each of these chapters. So we are doing basically a rough draft of what we think our titles are going to be right now. That's all we're doing. You don't fully develop your actual titles until after you've done your thorough investigation in each one. Once you've done your inductive Bible study, then you're going to go back and look at the title that, that you came up with, these things that we're suggesting right now, and you're going to say, are these good? Are these accurate? Do these really convey what it really is going on in this book? Do I want to change anything in any way? You, you know, you might even change a verse. You might even go to a different verse and say, oh, I think this verse is better. This one seems to be stronger. You'll know that after you've spent the hours 
of time in the word and in, and in prayer with the Lord that he clarifies things for you. That comes through meditation and a little bit of time, okay? Sometimes I have gone back even at the end of doing a whole book and said, you know, I don't like that chapter one title. It doesn't seem to flow with everything else. I think that this is a better title and I might change it at the end. So what we're doing right now is tentative. It is just suggestions and you're gonna clean them up later. So I'm gonna give you at least two possibilities here. The first one is what what uh, Craig said that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, okay? Uh, and if you just want to say that Christ is proclaimed and you think you're going to remember what everything else is going on in that chapter, it's fine. The shorter, the better, honestly, but it does need to be something that will bring to your recall what's going on in that chapter, okay? All right, so another one would be, um, I put this, that circumstances, because he talks about that, uh, turned out for greater progress of the gospel. That's another, that's in verse 18, and this one was in verse 12. So there's two possible ones right there. Convey the same message, yes. Slightly difference in statement, yes. Emphasis on the first one is just about the gospel. The second one, the emphasis is more on circumstances, which in my thinking maybe be, end up being a stronger thing because Circumstances change, right? Sometimes it's not specifically on the one subject like him being in prison for the gospel, but maybe it's another kind of circumstance, but still the outcome is that there's progress of the gospel. Maybe your life um, example of going through cancer and you're in a hospital and then you come out of it victoriously but along the way you proclaimed your love for God your faith in God your trust in God whether you lived or you died you did it for for God's glory and along that way guess what was happening there was progress of the gospel for those that were seeing you your, your testimony in, of God in your life so I'm just saying circumstances can change and so maybe that's a good one have I got them reversed oh okay Okay, sorry. <laughs> that can happen in my world. Okay, I'll have to remember to fix that when I get home. All right. Oh, no, it isn't. I know why it is. I, I have them listed in reverse on my page. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go to chapter 2 very quickly. Again, rejoicing there. What's going on in chapter 2? On the whole, what do you see are the things that he mentions in that chapter? about the mind and the attitude. So you know that the key words in there are mind and attitude. Up here it was prison and circumstances. Right, here it's the mind and attitude. So concerning the mind and the attitude, the fact that they're to rejoice, and in all of these, Christ is center. So you can always have Christ as a major key word in there, correct? Okay, verse 5. What do you see in 5? I love that one. Okay, and I'm going to change the word this to Christ to identify what the this is. Have C-H-R, C-H-R, I'm sorry. Have Christ's attitude. And then he goes on to say with me, 
right? Basically, with me. That's in verse 5. All right? So that's a really good title, and it definitely does the same thing. Besides Christ's attitude, he also talks about others' examples of that attitude, how they live it out, right? So there might be other suggestions in there. Do you have any other thoughts? What did you title yours? Be brave. I make my joy complete by being of the same mind. By being of the same mind, okay. Okay, so let me just show you what I'm doing. I'm saying this, rejoice in the Lord always. How? This way. How? This way. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm connecting joy by each of my title chapters are demonstrating how they can rejoice in the Lord always. They can do it by being of the same mind with us. He says that in um, 2.18 basically, right? Maybe that. Um, okay, give me another one. Two, two. Two, two. Okay, sorry. In 2.18, he says, rejoice in the same way as I rejoice. Right? So that's another one. Mm -hmm. Or being, but being of the same mind with me, that was my, one of my uh, choices too, Craig, in, in 2.2. Two. Okay, so 2.2, two, 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 2.5, two, 2.18. You can pick anyone you want. What you wanted to do is to explain how are they to rejoice in the Lord always. They're to do it, but whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed. So in other words, regardless of their circumstance. Down here, that circumstances turned out for greater progress of the gospel. That's what is explained in there. So how are they to rejoice always? That regardless of their circumstance, understand that it's going to turn out for the greater progress of the gospel if you do it correctly. <laughs> There's a caveat in that, but you have to do it correctly because there is a way for you to not progress the gospel, right? You can have hard circumstances and totally blow it in the eyes of other people watching you where they see you grumbling and complaining and not trusting God and having no faith that God is going to work this out for to, all things together for your good. So you, you have to understand that. So now chapter 3. Let's move on to the next one. What's going on in chapter 3? What is the very first thing he, he talks about in chapter 3? Beware, beware, beware. So it's warnings in here, right? He says beware. Mm -hmm. And there's an exhortation that gets repeated in here a lot, but it's just said in various ways. Um, what, are, what is the exhortation? Press on. What's the other one? Okay, that's what he's telling them to do, but he, the exhortation is press on and reach forward. Right? And another one, he says, keep, it doesn't say keep on, but he says keep doing this, basically. Right? So keep on, press on, reach forward. So he's exhorting them to do something regardless of the fact that there's a beware before it. Beware of this, but you keep on. Correct? So how would you then conclude what he's trying to Exhort them in. I mean, th there's also that thing about the flesh going on in that chapter. The, f the fleshly things or the earthly things versus keeping their eyes upon what's most important, right? 
Okay, so you might even want to put on here heaven and earth. Have the heavenly things are compared to the earthly things. There's a contrast in this. Sometimes contrasts, by the way, really help you to understand what the author's major point is in a text. If you look at what he's contrasting, it's going to help you. And so in this case, he makes the contrast between where they're going to set their eyes. Are they going to set their eyes on the things that are earthly, which could be circumstances, which could be bad? Or are they going to keep their eyes on the goal, the heavenly things, that which they have had as a promise for them, what's coming ahead, right? And so he makes this contrast. And in doing that, he's saying, then what are they supposed to do in order to rejoice in the Lord always? Concerning the circumstances, what, what can they do? Okay, good. I said, while pressing on toward the goal of the prize that we're calling the God, keep on living by that standard that we have already attained. Okay, so press on and keep living, I'm not sure what you said, living the standard? Okay. Okay, I like that. That's a really good title. Press on and keep living by standard obtained. I think that's I shortened it a little bit, but but that's what you want to do. You want to try to get it as short. Now, what is that verse? I was going to say, we're in the wrong chapter then. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. I have just the first clause in uh, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Brethren, join in my example. Okay, join in. Join in my example. And what verse are you in? Uh, it's, Brethren, join in following my example. Mm-hmm. And what is your scripture reference? One, excuse me, verse 17. 317? Okay, good. Okay, so join in my example. Rejoice in the Lord always by joining in his example. And then you can elaborate in your mind once you, because you know that the example he's given to you is how he has continued to press on regardless of circumstances in his life. He doesn't let the circumstances dictate his joy, does he? So what kind of joy is this, by the way? We haven't really talked about that. What kind of joy is this like? A yippy, skippy, I'm going to dance around the room joy. I am so happy to be in prison. I am so happy to be suffering. I love my circumstances. Is that the kind of joy that's being talked about here? What kind of joy is this then? I love that verse. I actually was thinking that same thing. This is, he says, and the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds, how? Through Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. If you keep your focus on Christ and the eternal things, your heart is going to be kept and you can endure in this, right? So join in my example. Press on and keep living by the standard that you have obtained, keeping your eyes on the things ahead. Um, 
You could have other, I'm going to throw them out here without writing them. Put, put no confidence in the flesh, but press on to what lies ahead. That's a good title. That's in 3.8. Um, how about in 20? Not setting minds on earthly things because our, your citizenship is in heaven. That's another really good title. That's in verse 20 if you want to look at that one. What about in 3.8? I love this one. Is By the way, when you start looking at the original language, this word rubbish is quite colorful. Counting all things to be rubbish to gain Christ. That's another good title possibly. Okay, So there's lots of possibilities in there. Are you catching my drift? I'll just put the references up here for you. Possibly there's one out of 3.8. There's another a second. There's actually two of them in 3.8. And then there's one in 3.20 I saw. So those are possibilities also. Counting all things to be lost in view of knowing Christ. I chose that one because he opens in chapter 1 with that prayer that it's through know, knowing him and, and the discernment that comes from knowing him that you can really bring him glory. And therefore, counting all things to be lost in, in view of knowing Christ. And I thought it was an important point that he actually brings up more than once in this book. It's subtle, but it's there. And, and it seems to be a root, a foundation that he says is what's going to allow you to have real joy and to be able to have joy, okay? All right, chapter 4, one more chapter, and we are done, and we did it, girls and boys. Yay. Chapter uh, 4. Okay, st okay, so rejoice in the Lord always. Then I'm going to put on here, because the peace of God... will keep you. I'm shortening what you said. That was what verse? That is four and seven. Verse 7. Okay, so that's one possibility. Rejoice in the Lord always because the peace of God will keep you. Knowing God, and that's how you're going to have that peace. That peace equals joy, by the way in this context. The peace he's actually referring to is the peace which results in a joy that causes you to be able to rejoice. All right? This particular chapter actually has quite a few, like, commands. Have you noticed that? There's one in uh, 4.1, there's one in 4.11, and there's one in 4.13 also. In 4.1, he starts right out off the bat saying, do, do what? Stand firm where? In the Lord. So there's another good title because everything bounces off of that and he, he elaborates on how to do that and what it results in as he goes on through the rest of that chapter. So stand firm in the Lord might be another possible title. And that's in verse 1. All right, the next one. Anything else? And we're going to wrap it up here. Okay. All right. You know what would really go well to pull that all together is 413. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So why can you rejoice in the Lord always? Because you can do all things, meaning you can even suffer if you have to. But you know what? You may not have to, but, you, but even when you're not. I can tell you this. I think often in our lives it's harder to actually glorify God when our lives are good. When things are happy and content and everything's going well, I think often what, what do we tend to do with God in those times? 
he ignore him. We kind of put him on the shelf. We are very happy. It doesn't mean that we stopped loving him, but it does seem like it's it's the it's when we're in the vice script of life, when we're in the pressure of life, when there's the circumstance of difficulties in our life, that's when we start doing what? Getting on our knees, calling up our friends and saying, please pray for me, or expressing to the people around us, God is with me in this, I have confidence. Did you see that in Paul? He's in prison. He says, I have confidence. I am absolutely certain. I know that this is all going to work out for the best. And it makes me think of that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. All right. Lovely. We did the entire overview. 